Welcome to the PTAB podcast. We are a group of paediatric trainees in the Southwest who every month review a selection of articles that we find useful for our practice. These are taken from the BMJ, Archives of Disease in Childhood Journals. For the full articles, please go to their website, journals.bmj.com. Please note, these are our own opinions and are produced for educational purposes only. They are not intended to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to the PEDS pod. My name is Felicity Cooksey. And I'm Leila Ellis, and we are paediatric trainees based in the Seven Deanery. Today we're going to be talking about Group A strep and the interim clinical guidance, which was released on the 16th of December 2022. Later in the episode, we'll be joined by Katie Hurd, who is an antimicrobial pharmacist working in a consultant role to discuss prescribing choices. It's worth noting that this podcast is being recorded in December 2022. Guidance is likely to change in the coming weeks and months, so please ensure you're accessing the most up-to-date guidance before making clinical decisions. So a bit of a background then, what is Group A strep and what's unusual about this winter? So Group A strep, or strep pyogenes, is a bacterium which presents in a variety of ways, including tonsillitis, scarlet fever, cellulitis, impetigo, pneumonia. Interestingly, one in five healthy children have strep A colonisation of their skin or throat. Scarlet fever is a notifiable disease, and monitoring has shown that cases of scarlet fever are higher than expected, as are cases of invasive group A strep. So invasive group A strep is where the bacteria is cultured from the blood, lungs, or joint, which are considered to be sterile areas of the body. National figures suggest that there's a higher instance of empyemas, which is an example of this. Children with viral infections, such as varicella or chickenpots, or influenza, are at higher risk of developing invasive group A strep disease and it's associated with co-viral infections. So thinking about the features of scarlet fever, these are a sore throat, fever, lethargy. A day or two later, children can develop a rough feeling rash and that's described as a sandpaper rash. Sometimes children can have perioral pallor where their face generally looks red and flushed but their mouth looks more pale. On darker skin, this rash has been described as having a more sunburnt appearance rather than appearing to be flushed. You can also develop a strawberry tongue and have enlarged cervical lymph nodes. About a week later, some children develop peeling of the skin on their hands and feet. So when it comes to spotting scarlet fever, are there any resources which you found helpful? Yeah, so I sometimes find looking at rashes challenging. So I found Don't Forget the Bubbles and their Skin Deep website really helpful. And also generally thinking about skin and rashes, Mind the Gap um, is a great resource which has um, some good photos of what rashes look like on darker toned skin. The other resources that I found helpful recently are on the Handy app and the what zero to 18 website there's lots of information for parents and professionals on that website including useful patient information leaflets we'll link to all of those resources in the episode description wonderful thank you flick so recognizing that many viral infections as well as bacterial infections such as group a strep can present with a sore throat there may be uncertainty about when to prescribe antibiotics 
Therefore, evidence-based tools can be particularly useful to ensure consistency in practice. And there are a number of these, one of which being the fever pain score. And there's a recent modification to this. And I wonder if you have heard of this on Flick. So I read the interim guidelines. Mm. I'm trying to remember exactly what it said. I think it was change it to three or more. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the fever pain score is particularly useful to, to guide when antibiotics um, might be given and it consists of five key criteria uh, and a useful way to remember it is, is the fever um, and uh, this is being present for at least 24 hours um, and then the PAIN of pain which is purulence or pus on the tonsils. Um, the A stands for attending rapidly which is usually within three days of symptoms starting. There's also the I which is inflammation of the tonsils which is usually quite severe and then N stands for no cough or chorizal symptoms. And each of these points scores one. So when you have three or more, that is when antibiotics should be considered and given. That's helpful. I hadn't thought about the acronym before. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's such a useful way. You know, I think there's a tendency to, as soon as you see pus on the tonsils, to jump to antibiotics, but it's just to be mindful of all these other factors which can be present as well. Yeah, so when clinicians are assessing children if they decide that a child should be treated with antibiotics then the guidance is for sore throats we should be prescribing five-day course of penicillin v for scarlet fever it's a 10-day course of pen v if a child has a severe penicillin allergy then the guidance is to give clarithromycin instead penicillin is a first choice of antibiotics because clarithromycin has resistance which is also why it's really important to send a swab before prescribing a macrolide antibiotic for when there's a suspicion of group A strep. It's important to reference your local guidance for alternatives based on availability and there's also additional details in the interim guidance which it's worth having a read of. Perfect, thank you for clarifying that. So earlier today, we caught up with Katie Hurd, who is an antimicrobial pharmacist working in a consultant role based in Somerset to explore prescribing in suspected group A strep. The recording took place in the hospital and therefore you may hear some background noises. Welcome, Katie. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, yeah, thanks for inviting me today. Um, so I'm a pharmacist by trade and I've been working in antimicrobials for about seven years now. Um, I was, did a lot of my training up in Chelsea and Westminster in London and now I've been at the Trust here in Somerset for about six months with a role that covers both acute sites and across the whole county as well. That's really exciting, Katie. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your experience and, and how you've tailored your career to focus kind of on the antimicrobial work. Yeah, so over the last five years, I've been working very closely with ID physicians, microbiologists, other consultant pharmacists, and working with them to develop myself um, and my knowledge. So with pharmacists, we don't necessarily have the structured training that, as doctors you guys have. So it's a lot of choice, a lot of work off your own back in order to specialise. The RPS does have some guidance for specialities, so that's our governing body, um, which we work along to that. And to become a consultant pharmacist, we need to complete a portfolio and show we're working at that level, which is what I'm working towards at the moment. Um, so today we're going to be discussing Group A strep. 
And we're seeing a high volume of patients where there's concern about possible group A strep in our emergency departments and on the ward itself. I wonder if you could take us through a little bit of an update on some recent statistics. Yeah, so the UK HSA do a lot of the statistics that are available to us and easily accessible. And they did a weekly publish on Friday. So that encompasses the Southwest, so not necessarily specific to Somerset, but within the Southwest, we know that we're seeing a rate of scarlet fever of about 7.3 within 100,000 population. Now, when you compare this nationally, they're looking at about 8.2 rate. Um, and then areas like northwest of England are seeing 13, so they're a lot higher. This coincides with the flu rates that are a lot higher up in this northwest area. Invasive group A strep, a lot smaller numbers, so you're seeing rates of about 0.9 down in Somerset. And then again, Yorkshire areas are seeing about 1.4, so slightly higher than us, with a national average of about 1, so we're sitting just below that at the moment. That's interesting. And how does that compare to last year, for example? So over the last two years, three years have been a bit of an anomaly, obviously, because we've had COVID. So we've had reduced social interaction, reduced communicable diseases in general. When you look back pre-COVID to 2017, 2018, there was a bit of a peak there as well. And generally with group A strike, we do see peaks through various years. So usually follows with viral illnesses. So I mentioned flu earlier. If we see higher flu, we'll see higher things like group A strep because we're damaging the mucosa those that are colonised with it are then getting disease with it. And obviously, if you're having more around, more people are getting it. So why you see more is due to exposure. So obviously, the last two or three years, we've not seen any exposure. Those children under four, where we're seeing some of the highest rates, won't have ever seen group A strep before in their lives because they've been born or brought up in that pandemic environment. So there's been a real lack of exposure and therefore that will mean there's a less immunity to it. So Katie, would you mind walking us through the latest guidelines for prescribing antimicrobials in group A strep? Yep, so there was an interim guideline released just last week that is very much following what the national guidelines have been for a long, long time with some minor differences on duration and then offering some alternatives. So first line remains penicillin V, Group A strep is massively susceptible to penicillin. So penicillin V is really narrow spectrum, really low rates of resistance, really efficacious against group A strep. We have been offered shorter courses for our simple sore throats. This we're seeing across the board for all infections now. So this isn't kind of a knee-jerk reaction type thing. It is more what we're seeing across infection in general. So for those simple sore throats, five days is absolutely fine. 10 days for those with scarlet fever and more invasive disease, so more severe disease. And this is to stop those sequelae we see with group A strep. So you get more likely to get a microbiological cure with 10 days. Whereas with five days, you will treat the infection. You just might not get complete clearance from the body. The guidelines have recommended alternatives, and this is largely to do with the supply chain. So it does offer amoxicillin, slightly broader spectrum than penicillin, still very efficacy. Um, why it's being avoided, usually because it's more broad spectrum, because of the differential diagnosis like EBV, where you might get a rash with amoxicillin, whereas you won't get that with penicillin V. 
Other alternatives that have been offered are the macrolides. Now, these are not preferable due to resistance in this class of antibiotics. So locally in Somerset, we have about 9% resistance to macrolides. In some areas across the country, you might see 25, 30% resistance to macrolides. So it's worth knowing what your local area says. Locally, we have suggested if you're giving a macrolide, we swab before antibiotics are given, and this will enable us to grow it, culture it, and see whether it is sensitive or not. So it's great for epidemiological data locally, but also making sure that the patient is being treated effectively. Going broader than that, there is options now for cephalexin, comoxiclav available. We're not having to go to that locally at the moment, but watch the space and see where we're at. Obviously, we want to avoid because they are broader spectrum. Thank you so much for going through the prescribing guidelines, Katie. It's really clarified a number of the points. As someone who is early on in my paediatric training, I really appreciate picking up on a few of the points that you mentioned. So the first one I was keen to cover was thinking about swabbing. So we know a number of young people will present to the emergency department after initially seeing their general practitioner who may have started them on some antibiotics and they may have already had a swab result or there may be a number of people who present to us not yet having a swab. Are there any uh, guidelines or advice that you can give us in terms of re-swabbing young people and how that may alter the course of their antibiotic duration? So re-swabbing on those that haven't had a swab and they've already started antibiotics, there's going to be a number of challenges with interpreting that Mm -hmm. result. So you're going to have those that might come back negative and that's because they've had antibiotics already um, and they've started responding to them. So this is sent for culture, this isn't sent for PCR when we're doing our group A strep. So our chances of isolating it once antibiotics started is going to be relatively low unless there's resistance there. So locally, anyone that's given a macrolide, we really want to be swabbed before starting that and that will allow us to know if they're resistant to the macrolide. If they've come in not responding and they've been on a macrolide, we might still isolate it if it is that case. We also need to think about differentials. So if a patient is representing, not getting clinically better, there's a number of differentials that this could be. So thinking about our extended viral swabs, thinking about asylum seekers with diphtheria, what their tetanus, have we got any returning travellers? So lots and lots and lots of differentials that we need to be thinking about. So group A straps are very much in the media, it's at the forefront of our brain, but there's a lot else going on out there at the moment. Thank you. Um, My other question was about amoxicillin because I've noticed that we sometimes have difficulty in obtaining PEN-V at the moment and we're therefore going for amoxicillin. How would you normally counsel parents of children when you're prescribing amoxicillin for a tonsillitis? So it is still a penicillin. It's still relatively narrow spectrum, obviously more broad than penicillin V. Penicillin V, you have the food restrictions, which we're not necessarily following all the time at the moment because it's debated whether it actually causes a difference. So we are giving it with food, whereas moxicillin you can give with food quite happily, quite easily. There is the risk of rash, which is much higher with amoxicillin. Now we know this doesn't always mean an allergic rash. So if the rash is noticed, thinking about whether it's, mum thinking about whether it's itchy, how it's come on, has it come on, within two hours of the dose being given. If it has, they need to think about, is there any airway compromise, get them to see someone fairly quickly. Other than that, there's not a huge amount of differences. We know we don't give amoxicillin, as I said earlier, because of the interaction with EBV virus. So we might see a rash again due to that. So the main things I'd say is 
can be given with food and watch out for a rash. Don't panic unless it comes on within two hours of a dose and there is oral involvement there. So Katie, I am also uh, curious to see, so with the high numbers of young people that we are seeing present um, with sore throats and symptoms that might be consistent with a group A strep or other similar illnesses, whether it's virus or bacterial, what's the threshold for prescribing antibiotics and what are some of the tools that we can use to help guide our management? So the current guidelines are really recommending the fever pain score. So this uh, has pretty high clinical accuracy on differentiating between your viral and your bacterial infection. The pain score has adjusted, hasn't it? Three or more. So traditionally three was always consider antibiotics or give a delayed or backup prescription. Whereas now three is to give antibiotics, four or five is definitely give. So there's a slightly lower threshold within that at the moment. Lovely. We will add a link in the description to the fever pain score. Nice. And there's also the central score, but I think, again, the the fever pain is something that I'm slightly more familiar with. And for some practical advice, so I was recently doing, for example, if someone was recently doing a night shift and didn't have amoxicillin or Penvi available to them, what would be your next step in terms of prescribing for a child who you suspected had scarlet fever? Yep, so at the moment the national guidance is the macrolide, obviously with that caveat around potential resistance. Locally that is what we are going for at present. Please take a a sample if you are using those. Other options are cephalexin or um, cotrimoxazole or comoxiclav. Cephalexin and comoxiclav have lower resistant rates, but you're exposing that child to much broader antibiotics, which increase their risk of GI side effects, increase their risk of resistance. So it's, it's not without its own associated risks. Yeah, and I've been seeing more in the guidance about giving capsules over liquid. What's your advice regarding that? Yeah, so there's been a national communication about using solid dosage forms in children. There's been a lot of work on this with the paediatric groups over way before all of this has happened, and that is to encourage the use of tablets in children. There's less additives, there's less sugar, they're generally more palatable if they're not chewing on them, they're more readily available, there's not the storage requirements when you're using tablets over liquids. There's a lot of positives to using them in these children. The Phenoxamethyl penicillin tablets are tiny. They are so, so small. And I've actually got a very nice video of my three-year-old niece taking it on a spoonful of yogurt. <laughs> and it's beautiful. And encouraging your child to take responsibility, I think, is so, so important. So handing them the tablet, getting them to put it on their spoonful of yogurt, and then taking it will really, really help with that. They were looking into the food interactions, and for something with a low break point, it's not going to make enough difference to the amount of penicillin they're absorbing. Amoxicillin as capsules open up really nicely and it's a powdered form. It is a little bit bitter, so masking it in something nice and sweet. So we're coming away from the sweet syrups of the liquids into a nice bit of jam or something, but getting them to take it through that as well. And I think, you know, encouragement, responsibility and understanding why they have to take it, even in the really young, is really important. And can I just ask, in terms of tablets, do you follow set guidelines in terms of ages of when you would maybe start to consider introducing them or appreciate it might be quite child specific? So it's quite often more drug specific. So once we can use whole dosage forms or 
exactly half dosage forms with something that's scored or easy to cut. So with phenoxymethylpenicillin, it's not actually licensed in a solid dosage form dose until you're very, very young, whereas amoxicillin is down to one, it's 250 in doses. So it's more based on the tablet and the dosage form and making sure we get a safe and dose into the child. That's really useful. Thank you for going through that. So I wonder if we could have a bit more of a chat uh, in terms of the supply chain sort of issues that we're seeing at the moment. It's not something that I've seen before. I don't know whether, you know, there's experience in in other um, medicines that that you've uh, or the team locally have had to deal with some of these challenges before. But what are some of the points of reflection that you could bring in from that? So supply seems to be getting more and more of a problem. So it's something that pharmacists have experienced a lot over the last few years and we're constantly having to adapt to what the current situation is with it. With this, obviously, there was a huge demand, particularly on the liquid um, formulations, which are harder to come by anyway. They're produced in lower numbers, etc. And now we're seeing that kind of go out into the tablets and the capsules what we have to do is we have to manage it and use what we've got available and making sure that we've got this using what's safe in those children. So locally, we have got a limited supply of liquids. So we are encouraging the liquid use for our younger children. And that, that will vary from place to place as to what's available. Within Somerset, we're quite heavily reliant on TTA packs. So packs that are ready for the patient to go home all labelled up. The companies that build the TTA packs have to get supply in from the supply chain which has been barriered and then label them and then get them out to us so this will have a bigger knock-on effect on those sort of things which is why at Somerset I know this won't apply to the whole of Southworth we had to restrict the TTA packs more so issues with supplies the suppliers have to get it to the wholesalers and then get it out to us as trust so you would have seen earlier last week or the week before, the government was saying there's no supply issues whatsoever. There was some sat in wholesalers, it just hadn't made it down to us. Now some has made it down to us on, you know, in community pharmacies, hospital pharmacies, but that is a limited supply. So we're just waiting for that next wave to come through. So we just need to use what we have available as best and safely as we can. Thank you. And I know you've been involved in writing a number of our local guidelines. I'm curious to hear the extent to which there have been discussions with the local team versus on a more national scale. And are there any networks that that you look to to make some of these decisions through? Yep. So we have to look at what our local stockholding is, how we practice locally. We have a number of MIUs. We have EDs. We have PAU here so we have to look at what stock they usually use and what the demand is going to be on them going forwards obviously we have to take into account the national guidance and it's really helpful that nationally they've released the solid dosage forms in children because that's so so helpful for us to be going off label off license but under agreed national protocol and then locally looking at our resistance rates within the local team so as i said fairly confident with macrolides locally, one in 10 roughly resistance, whereas other areas may not feel that same comfort. So as with any antimicrobial guideline, local guidelines are adapted from national. So when you change trust, don't go going, in Bristol they use this because of this. It really is a local decision. And I think that just highlights the point, doesn't it, that, you know, whenever you're prescribing and with something that's so fast changing in nature to always review your local guidelines. And that's just a really clear example of that. So thank you very much. 
And I wonder, do you have any top resources for paediatricians in general when thinking about prescribing? So at the moment, relevant to the tablets and liquids, there's a website called Kids Meds and they really talk about how to encourage children to take tablets. They've got comic book strips, they've got videos, they've got information for parents and carers um, and how to use these solid dosage forms in children and making it really child accessible, certificates for the children once they can take it, all of these sorts of things. So I think it's a great resource that needs to be used more widely. That's awesome. Um, I'm absolutely going to go and check that out and uh, try and advise it to uh, all the patients I see. Uh, I'm also curious to see, perhaps we could discuss more generally in sort of prescribing around antibiotics for, for children. Are there any other points of advice that you would give to paediatricians? I guess we could perhaps speak around the um, thoughts around resistance, because I think thinking about that in terms of an individual level versus on a, a larger scale what are some of the things that we can be thinking about? So I think for me personally, I have a bit of a passion for penicillin and allergy. Mm-hmm. And this outbreak really highlights how important penicillins are to us. No resistance in this. Low side effects compared to many of the others. No interactions, anything like that. And I think as paediatricians, a lot of children do get labelled as having an allergy in those early years. And a lot of it is what we've talked about already today. You know, viral rashes, amoxicillin, non-allergic rash um, or a strep rash so just having a look revising your rashes documenting if it does happen and making patients and parents really clear about why this rash has occurred and not necessarily associating it with the penicillin always with obviously the side of caution but I think that's probably one of my my top tips and pleas as a for the generations ahead on an individual and population basis. Thank you so much. My final question, uh, as we might have already covered it, if there was any message that as a pharmacist you wanted to convey to the medical team and other prescribers, is there anything that you wish we knew or any messages you wanted to highlight? IVs are not always better than orals. Yeah, so there's a really nice piece of research in cellulitis and various other bits that actually show pretty nice efficacy of orals versus IVs and I think not just paediatricians as a culture as a whole we think a patient's been admitted to hospital so they need IVs there's lots that have really good bioavailability there's lots that have really good evidence of efficacy as orals not IVs so I think unless your patient's not absorbing not able to take don't not septic (laughs) don't always look to those IVs Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. That's a really helpful talk. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Katie. That's all for this episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch via our email address, podcast at pedshub.co.uk or via the Pedshub website. Equally, if you'd like to get involved, we always welcome your voices, so please do get in touch. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening.